Construction began on Notre Dame Cathedral, or if you're from Indiana, Notre Dame, in 1163 and took 187 years to complete. Nine generations, some of the same family, participated in its creation, six or seven of which never saw the magnificent building completed. For some contrast, when I was part of a mega church staff in Indiana, which is how I know how Notre Dame is properly pronounced, in the early 2000s, our first 92,000 square foot building took just under 13 months to build. And it was agonizing. <laughs> Sheesh, no perspective there. In our three visits to Paris over the decades, Lauren and I have spent many meaningful hours strolling through that great cathedral. Part of its design and part of why it took so long, really, part of its design and that of most European cathedrals is as you process around the ambulatory and circling the choir and the apse is a frieze, F-R-I-E-Z-E, -E, that frames the Bible in pictures, not as much for art's sake, but so that even those who couldn't read could still know the scriptures. And what look initially like distinct pictures in themselves are actually a sequence of frames that together tell a fuller story. Kind of an ancient graphic novel, <laughs> if you will. The four debates in Luke 20 are like that. And we got number four of four today. We have skipped the first three. But they are like that. They're a sequence of frames that only together tell the fuller story. And it really will help us understand the theological, spiritual, and relational import of this week's gospel if we see where and how it fits within the sequence. So if you've got your Bible, just flip it open to, or a device, flip it open to Luke 20. We're kind of going to go through the whole chapter. And um, we'll try to do that in a reasonable amount of time. I think I can like the little rector that could. <laughs> By the way, um, sometimes parents send me um, videos of their children. Uh, and I got one this week from a, a family. It's got a little guy who sits in church with us most times. And he was going through the liturgy with a book open and saying it perfectly. He was just saying all the calls, all the responses. And at the end, his mother asked him, um, who is the man who usually teaches at um, our church? And he said, Hair Steve. <laughs> Which I'm glad he didn't say Fat Steve. <laughs> well, I love that kid. Sorry. <laughs> hair, hair Steve. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So the first picture in verses 1 through 8 is a serious question by the chief priests about Jesus' authority on the heels of both his dramatic entrance into Jerusalem itself and his dramatic action in the temple courtyard, overturning the tables of money changers and merchants there. He was acting like someone who actually thought he was in charge. But there was already an authority structure in the temple with the chief priests at the top and the high priests being the most sing, uh, 
important leader, the most senior leader. I mean, who does Jesus actually think he is to come in without any kind of accreditation, no kind of certification, and start throwing his weight around? By what authority do you do these things? And who is it that gave you this authority in verse 2 is a perfectly natural question for them to ask. Jesus' reply was to ask a question himself, to go back to the very beginning of his ministry, his baptism, and whether or not John the Baptist was a true prophet sent from God. Verses 3 and 4, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? Which takes them completely by surprise. I mean, what's John got to do with this? This has to be a trick question to call them out and make them look stupid. But it wasn't. The reason Jesus asks the question is because his authority over the temple is his messianic authority conferred on him at his baptism by John, described in detail in Luke 3. With the descent of the Holy Spirit and the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If John was a true prophet, then Jesus is Messiah, pure and simple, with authority over the temple because he was marked with that authority as he came up out of the water. If, on the other hand, John wasn't a true prophet, if he was just a wild-eyed bohemian running around in the desert eating locusts and wild honey and leading people astray, then Jesus is acting completely out of line. And by making John so important in the early part of the story, Luke's already explained what's happening. Authority has been passed. Quietly, without many people noticing, it's been passed from the old system to the new. From now on, even as in just a few days after this, he, Jesus hangs on the cross, mocked, mocked by the same chief priest, he will exercise that authority, the powerful authority of salvation and healing until everyone and everything we know from Scripture in heaven and on earth and under the earth acknowledges it. So this leads to the second picture, verses 9 through 18, the parable of the tenant farmers, which reveals Jesus' coming to Jerusalem as the son of the vineyard owner, the last in a long line of prophets, but far greater than all of them. The vineyard's owner has sent three messengers to them to no effect. Finally, having no one left to send, he sends his own beloved son. Now, no first century Jew worth their weight would have needed to be told that the, the owner stood for God, the tenant farmers for Israel, and the messengers for the prophets. Jesus had come as the rightful king to his father's tenants, but they were determined to keep the vineyard for themselves, and eventually they will throw him out and kill him. Israel was charged with bearing the fruit of justice in its own life, but in an even greater sense, modeling God's grace to the world around them. But Israel insisted on keeping that grace to itself, practicing injustice in its own life, and seeking to repel and resist and isolate from the world around them. Israel has rejected God's way and will now reject God's final messenger. In so doing, they will heap the judgment they'd long desired for others squarely upon their own shoulders. And so now we walk to the third frame, 
paying taxes to Caesar, verses 19 through 26. The authorities are bent on framing a charge against Jesus before his teaching inflames the crowds into disorder and rioting. So they send people to him who appear to be good, devout Jews, genuinely wrestling with the dilemma that was a challenge to many in that day. If they were obeying God's law, how could they possibly agree to pay taxes to a pagan despot? On the other hand, did they have a choice? Sounds like the perfect like Yiddish question, right? On the other hand, do I have a choice? <laughs> anyway. ADD moment right there. They pretended to be righteous, but what they actually had in mind was what Jesus had already predicted. They would hand him over to the Roman, Roman governor to be killed. The trick question they asked seemed perfect for the job. It would either expose Jesus as a revolutionary, making him oppose the tax, or it would show the crowds that he wasn't really the kind of leader they wanted by making him say that the kingdom of God was simply a spiritual thing with no relevance to everyday reality. But Jesus flips everything. And the accusers, which is what they really are, are themselves accused. He puts them on the spot immediately by asking them to produce the Roman coin used to pay the tax. And his question, even more damning than theirs and its implications, gets them to admit that it is indeed Caesar's coinage they have on them with the image of Tiberius Caesar and the blasphemous inscription that proclaims him as the son of God. What were they, as God-fearing Jews, doing even possessing this filthy coin? Then Jesus' double-barreled command in verse 25, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, is the mic drop. Their question is luminously answered, and the accusers aren't just accused, but they're also tried and convicted. On the one hand, just give Caesar back his blasphemous coinage, but on the other hand, give God back what belongs to him. And there's Jesus' steady accusation against Israel and her leaders that they've consistently failed to worship their true and living God and to live as his people in the world. The temple itself, the, the very place where Israel was supposed to come and give back to God what was his in worship, prayer, and holiness, and sacrifice had become a den of thieves and robbers. But there's even a, a darker theme just underneath the surface here. The accusers have failed this time, but Jesus knows, and Luke's readers know. They'll succeed soon enough. Very soon, they're going to hand over to Caesar, not only the coin that bears his image and the false title, Son of God, but they're also going to hand over Jesus, the one human who perfectly bears God's image and who alone legitimately bears that title. So that brings us to the fourth frame, today's gospel reading, the Sadducees' question about marriage and resurrection in verses 27 through 40, followed immediately by Jesus' own question about how David's son can also be David's Lord, which we didn't read today, it's verses 41 through 44. All of these pictures are important and instructive in their own right, but put them together like a freeze. 
And what do they say? They powerfully encapsulate the story behind Jesus' power and authority as Messiah and help establish his bona fides for the incredible promise he makes about our future. Frame one, Jesus arises from John's prophetic movement and is publicly anointed by God, Messiah. Frame two, he comes to Israel as God's unique son with a final message of both warning and pleading. They reject him, ultimately calling down judgment on themselves. Frame three, he's willingly handed over to Caesar for execution. And frame four, resurrection. I really don't think this sequence is coincidental on Luke's part. When Jews thought about the resurrection, they had a particular story in mind. The story of Israel off into the future when God would, at the end of time, raise all Israel from the dead and completely redeem and restore the heavens and the earth for them to live in. An event at the last day in which the dead would be physically raised, alive again, eternally, in a way that we can't quite wrap our brains around now, and every wrong in the world would be made right again. But this is precisely what the Sadducees, who were confronting him, denied. And by the way, if you ever have trouble remembering the Pharisees from the Sadducees, this is how you do it. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see? <laughs> but um bump I'll be here all week. <laughs> Good one. The problem was they limited what the, the Sadducees now, the problem was they limited what the what they called the scriptures to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's hard to make an argument for the resurrection from these books. It's much easier to, to prove from comparatively recent books like Daniel and Isaiah. But the Sadducees rejected these later books, and so they rejected resurrection as a modern heresy. They told stories to illustrate just how stupid this belief was based on Moses' command that if a man dies leaving no children, it's his brother's responsibility to marry her and to take care of her. How can the dead be raised, they reason, if we won't be able to tell who's married to whom? And in reply, Jesus makes two points. First, resurrection life will not be exactly the same as the present one. It will be physical but death will have been abolished and the need to continue a particular family line and thus sexual relations will be irrelevant. Now, Lauren and I, when we were dating, we went to a church that was what you would call dispensational. So we definitely believed that Jesus was coming back very soon and he was gonna take all of us out of the world and we wanted to get married before he did that. Because, you know, and we were talking to a very sage man one time, and he said, we shared that, and we're joking about it, and he said, don't you think there will be something better? Something better for us in eternity? We had to admit that God probably did have things beyond our imagining that would also bring us joy. 
Those who are raised will be, in verse 36, equal to the angels. Not in the sense that they'll become angels, but in the sense that they'll live a deathless, immortal life. Those whom God, in verses 34 and 35, considers worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection will have bodies perfectly fitted to the new heavens and the new earth in which death and corruption will be no more. Second, Jesus does something remarkable. He proposes that the book of Exodus, one of the five books the Sadducees acknowledged as authoritative, uh, does indeed teach the resurrection when it describes God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs are still alive to God in his presence, awaiting their final resurrection. The Sadducees denied that while the Pharisees believed it. And so in a really strange twist, Jesus falls squarely on the side of the Pharisees who saw that coming. Okay, so all of this is interesting and important, but so what? What does our future resurrection mean for us today, right now, in our culture? Well, I think we have to start by addressing the kind of, to me, this is the first step. We have to start by addressing the kind of Cartesian body-person dualism on steroids that we live in today. The notion that our bodies are distinct from and incidental to, not integral to who we quote-unquote really are or feel ourselves to be, our true identity. This is insidious and rampant, even in our elementary and middle schools today. And is having a real, is, is having real and disastrous circumstances. We should feel great compassion for people trapped in this ultimately dehumanizing and destructive duality that is actually an attack on the body. And I think the proper response is not castigating or disparaging individuals, but rather a biblical defense of the body to address and help heal what has become a dangerous disintegration of body and person. Some of you are familiar with the, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, and I, I, it's, this is not the time or place for it, but some of you are familiar with the work of Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a dense book, uh, but he has written a, a follow-on to it called Strange New World, which is very street level, doesn't have all the facts and figures and things in it, and I would highly recommend just for understanding kind of how we got to where we are today that you read that book by Carl Truman, Strange New World. You see, the Bible insists on the profound value and dignity of the material, including the human body, as the creative handiwork of a loving God. That's why biblical morality, not, not just simply to be a buzzkill, but that is why biblical morality places such immense weight on the fact of human embodiment and what we do with our bodies. Rather than separating them, the scripture treats body and soul as entirely integrated. 
The inner life of the soul is expressed in and through the outer life of the body. This is highlighted regularly uh, through the parallelism of, of parallelism of Hebrew poetry in the Psalm, Psalm 63, 1. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Psalm 44, 25, our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Proverbs 4, 21 and 22, keep my words in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Psalm 32, 3, when I refused to repent of my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. In one sense, our bodies even have primacy over our spirits because the body is the only avenue we have for expressing our inner life or for knowing another person's inner life. It's the means by which the invisible is made visible, the unknown known. And as we are discovering in our small groups, it's in and through our bodies that we experience joy and build strong attachments. And it's those strong attachments rather than ourselves that shape our identity and our character, literally the thing that transforms us. It's not think right, act right, as if we're just brains on a stick. God designed us with integrity. When we're eating food, we don't say my mouth is eating. We say I'm eating. The Bible never reduces the body to a biomechanical machine and we must reject this idea. Instead, the body is intrinsic and integral to the person and therefore will be ultimately redeemed along with the person a process that begins even in this, this life. It's both now and not yet, which is part of the huge tension that we feel. It's like we have new creation software, but it's running on old creation hardware. Humans are further described from the beginning as being those whose personhood includes being part of the earth from which they were created. The second chapter of Genesis says God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and it was his walking anime, it was this walking animated dirt that God pronounced very good. It was these embodied earthly sexed creatures, man and woman, that God described as being his very own image in Genesis 1.26, made to reflect his character, both in our minds and in our bodies. You see, what makes Christianity singular is the incarnation, God himself entering matter and taking on a physical body. There's simply no higher value that you can place on the human body than that the word became flesh. And the word remained flesh. If you want to have your mind blown, just think about this for a while. There is still at the right hand of the Father right now a human person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no greater prospect for the human body than the future that Jesus has won for it by becoming flesh. 
At the heart of the gospel is the idea that the transcendent God broke into history as a baby born in Bethlehem, genuinely physical at a specific time in a specific place. Initially, this was Christianity's greatest scandal and why the apostles so often stressed Christ's body that in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Colossians 2.9, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24, that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus, Hebrews 10.10, and St. John even says the crucial test of orthodoxy is to affirm that Jesus has come in the flesh in 1 John 4, 2. When Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, one might say he'd finally escaped the constraints of the material world, as some heresies throughout the ages have said. Except that what did he do next? He came right back in a bodily resurrection. And not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he also ascended to heaven. You know, we often think of the ascension as a kind of add-on with no important theological meaning well, what it means is that Christ's taking on of human nature wasn't a temporary expedient to be jettisoned when he finished the work of salvation. Rather, because he was taken bodily into heaven, his human nature is permanently and eternally connected with his divine nature. Finally, what will happen at the end of time? God He's, he's not going to scrap the material world in time and space as though he made a mistake. He's going to restore and renew and recreate it, leading to new heavens and a new earth where God's people will live with him in resurrected bodies. We read that in Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, and Revelation 21, 1. It's true that at death, humans undergo a temporary separation of body and soul, but that was not God's original intent. Death disintegrates what God intended and created to be eternally unified. This is why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead in John 11, 33 and 38. Twice Jesus has, is deeply moved in spirit and troubled, which is a euphemistic, is a euphemism because, because in Greek that phrase actually means furious indignation. Jesus was outraged. outraged at the pain and sorrow caused by the enemy invasion that had devastated his beautiful creation. Christians are never told to accept death as a natural part of creation. Scripture portrays it as something alien, an enemy that entered into creation with the fall. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. In the new creation, body and soul will be perfectly reunified as God meant them to be. And when the Bible speaks of redemption, it doesn't mean going to heaven when we die. It means the restoration of everything. It brings life, hope, and meaning to every part of human existence. The gospel message is that the entire physical world will be transformed. Humans won't be saved out of the material correct, uh, creation, but saved together with the material creation. Obviously, we cannot know exactly what life will be like in eternity. But the fact that scripture calls it a new earth means it won't be a negation of the life we've known. 
Instead, it will be an enhancement, an intensification, a glorification of this life. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, which we read today. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This broken world will be fixed in the end. God's creation will be restored, and you and I will live in that renewed creation in renewed bodies. We will not simply cease to exist, nor will we be floating around in heaven as wispy, gossamer spirits. We will have physical feet firmly planted on a restored physical earth. And this is a promise only Messiah can make. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>